Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Faith and You, You, the podcast for everyone. My name is McKinley Sims. I serve as the minister of the UU Church of the Restoration in beautiful Mount Airy, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and we are back. It has been a month or two since the last podcast because life happens, church happens, Thanksgiving happened, and we've had some technical difficulties in putting up our sermons on the YouTube and on our internal website called Sermon.net. But here we are. It is December. It is Advent. It is a time of waiting and reflection for those of us who follow the Christian calendar. And I am excited to share with you the words and the ideas of the sermon that we presented at Restoration yesterday. We get into the weeds about a couple of things We were talking about religious myth and the mythology that surrounds religious traditions who have holy days in December. We did Advent, the story of Advent and Resistance the week before, and I want to put the audio of that up on the podcast feed. But yesterday was for those in our congregation and those amongst us who consider themselves non-believers, humanists, secularists, atheists, simply nuns. N-O-N-E-S, and that there's something in the December holidays for those of us who consider ourselves non-believers as well. So the theme was religious myth, and I told the kids a story about looking up into the sky and seeing that the light takes a long time to reach your eyes from the stars that are millions of light years away, and how that fills us with a sense of awe. Because the Soul Matters theme for us for December is awe, A-W-E. I felt like the podcast could use this sermon and use a rehashing of it rather than just using the audio from our YouTube feed. Because I want to do a little bit more in-depth. And also because it looks like there were some technical difficulties. And though this sermon went really well... People seem to really resonate with it. I felt really good about it. It's rare that all those things sync up in one sermon, but I really felt like we knocked it out of the park yesterday. And of course, it appears that our recording was not recording. So it was a little bit of a uh, Babe Ruth calling his shot kind of moment where you had to be there. So we're going to try and recreate it today. Without further ado, let us dive into the theme of religious myth. For me, when it comes to awe, I will never forget looking up at the night sky spread out above me like a deep ebony and velvet blanket dotted with the pinpricks of light that I had recently learned from my physics teacher who explained to me they were living history. Because the light of the stars was taking thousands, if not millions of years to reach my eyes. When I looked up in the sky, I was literally looking back through time. And I pondered this mystery and I felt small and insignificant and yet so connected to the earth upon which I stood and stared and gawked with what can only be described as awe. And the weirdest part for me 
in this moment was that it was not the first time that I'd stared up at the sky. I was in high school at this point. But I remember this being the first time that I had done it. I had stared up in the sky and not been able to recognize any of the constellations. Because I was in the Andes Mountains on a family trip on a pilgrimage to Machu Picchu, somewhere where my mother, the inimitable Frankie B, had wanted to go since she was in third grade, and we got a chance to do it. And I remember looking up and seeing such a foreign sight and the wonder of the world, the awe, the mystery of the universe confounded me. I was stunned, I was humbled with how wild and complex our galaxy is. And the only way that I can try to share what that feeling is, is to tell you this story. Right? We tell a lot of stories about our world, about ourselves, about the nature of reality, about what it means to live and to be alive. Storytelling, myth-making, is as ancient a spiritual practice as we humans have had since I would imagine we gained the capacity to look upwards at the starry expanse, to notice the shifting skies, the twirling galaxies, and to tell stories to try and explain our place in all of this to find out where we fit in the great mystery. And for a long time, our people believed these stories, and religion sprang into existence. But religious myth is not the only kind of story that we tell, nor are the mythic elements of creation stories, divine births, and the existence of a supernatural deity the only kinds of myths that affect those of us who are humanist, atheist, agnostic, non-believers. Not the only kind of myths that we have to work through in a search for truth and meaning. So many of us in my congregation, in our world, don't put stock in stories about great floods or semi-divine humans or life beyond death. But that's not the only myth, the only kind of myth, that we have to travel through and wrestle with. Secular life has its own set of myths and storytelling issues. And you don't have to be a practitioner of any particular religious tradition to encounter and wrestle with the legends, the tall tales, the mythic elements that we tell ourselves about who we are and how we fit into this world. For those of us looking to make meaning, to find our place in the cosmos... We can't always count on staying away from churches, temples, synagogues, or other houses of worship to avoid those hard stories. For example, there's the myth of the lost cause of the South during the Civil War. There's the myth of manifest destiny. There's the myth of American exceptionalism. There is the myth of white supremacy. And there is the myth of objective religious truth. These are secular myths that walling off traditional religious practice, language, and spaces does not always guarantee us a rational and understandable view of the world or of ourselves. Just because you reject traditional religious language, as the humanist manifesto generation did, you find that your secularism, your humanism, 
It might allow you to disregard the mythic elements of other scriptural traditions that don't speak to your logical center or your rational mind. But you might find, as they did, that there's a need for a religious response to the awe and the mystery of the universe, of humanity, of life itself. I resonate with this journey through the rejection of traditional religious language, in my case, Christianity, but traditional religious language could be Judaism, could be Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, take your pick. But for me, returning to Christian theology to help me make sense of my life is one of the things that most often helps me make sense of the big questions that December always makes me think about. I've gone through the phase where I tried to reject the supernatural, the miracle, the creation stories because I thought I did not need help to find my place in all this, to wrestle with the questions of how did we get here? What is the point of all of this? Where are we going in the future? Going to seminary, I was already in that place. And going to seminary for me helped me look beyond the stories and the myth and the woo-woo, as some people call it. For what it is, these stories, these myths, these legends, they have a lot of irrational and illogical points in them. And I've been reading some of Anthony Penn's work, who offers an African-American humanist perspective on this dismantling and this looking beyond, through one of his principles of black humanism. He writes, Black humanism has an appreciation for African-American cultural production and a perception of traditional forms of black religiosity as having cultural importance as opposed to any type of cosmic authority. In other words, that you can have respect and honor for the myths and the culture that created it, and you can recognize the literary and social historical significance of what's behind the stories without feeling like you are abandoning your brain at the door. Something I also hear often. I don't want to leave my brain at the door, check my brain at the door to believe in something. When you hear a story with mythic elements around the holidays, rather than rejecting it wholesale because it contains traditional religious language or doesn't appeal to your logical center or your rational state of mind, is to ask yourself, what are the stories pointing us towards? What is the story trying to explain or question or wrestle with? Does the myth speak to the wonder of being alive? The mystery of being alive and having to die? The wonder of the universe, the cosmos, the infinite connectedness of the galaxies? It's what stories do for us. And sometimes the only way we can get that feeling across is to tell a story. So here's one about the history of Machu Picchu, where this sermon started. That the white guy who discovered it, Hiram Bingham, found three farmer families quietly tilling the earth on the site. And no one is quite sure whether the city was the famed lost city of the Incan people, as Hiram Bingham surmised until his death, believing his own myth of his own cleverness and his white superiority. But many believe the city has some kind of astronomic or astronomical significance. There's the famed Incan trail 
that ends in the sacred site, and it wanders in this indirect path from Cuzco to Machu Picchu, through the mountains, up and down, around valleys. And this has led to folks theorizing that the path, the Incan Trail, may have been a kind of pilgrimage to mirror the mythic journey of the legend of the first Incans, when they left their place of creation, called the Island of the Sun on Lake Titicaca, where the sun god Inti was born after a great flood and a period of long darkness. First humans, born in a place of secluded creation, where the god that is worshipped also resides, a story of great flood, a god born after a period of long darkness. Anything sounding familiar here? Resonance with the solstice legends and myths, the Christmas story, the theme of Hanukkah, the light in the temple. Many of our December holidays focus on light in the darkness, and here we have another. So no one knows why the Inca Trail goes the way it does. Right, a researcher writes, rather than simply following a more sensible path along the banks of the Urubamba River, the Inca built the impractical but visually stunning Inca Trail, which, according to an astronomer and archaeologist, last name is Magli, prepared pilgrims for entry into Machu Picchu. The final leg of the pilgrimage would have concluded with climbing the steps of the Intihuatana stone, the highest spot in the main ruins. So this stone is set up to show you true north, east, west, and south. It has connections with the solstice, with the equinox, with the turning of the seasons. It's an astronomical marvel. This is the story that we tell to try to make sense of a place like Machu Picchu to try to make meaning, to find order amidst the randomness and the chaos and the loss of time in history. So for us, it could be a function of religious searching, this myth-making, this myth-telling, this myth-believing. But I also think it is a function of the scientific theory, searching for truth and seeking to explain the nature of the universe. I think that they point towards different truths, but the process is kind of the same, and religion and science have been intertwined for many millennia. So we've been talking religion. We're going to buckle down and do a little bit of science. Are we ready? Because we're going to talk quantum physics. Yes, friends, that's right, quantum mechanics. So I spent a long time down the YouTube video rabbit hole trying to understand quantum physics, and I was heartened by this quote from Richard Feynman, who won a Nobel Prize for his work with quantum mechanics, who said, quote, if you think you understand quantum physics, comma, you don't understand quantum physics, period. That made me feel both a little bit better and a little bit worse. But reading some articles and watching a lot of videos, learn that we do understand how it works, actually. That quantum physics is a different way of understanding how the universe is actually organized and ordered, how it operates. It's what's helped us build microchip processors, digital cameras, photoreceptors, nuclear power, etc. So quantum physics, basically, is that when you get down to the subatomic level, right, you think about 
the way that we've traditionally viewed our world is like Legos. Everything fits together in a pattern. If you understand how the Legos go together, you can build the entire universe. But when you get down to the very smallest pieces, into the atoms, into the smaller piece of the atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons, and even smaller, something called quarks, when you get down to this subatomic level, you find that the small scale doesn't quite work how the big scale world does. And quantum mechanics seeks to describe how the small scale works, which is actually how the whole universe works, how the big world works. So the old Newtonian view of atoms, shout out to Sir Isaac Newton, was about atoms combining together and phases of matter and that everything is neat and orderly and it's this Lego block world. Quantum theory relies on a universe that's not made up of matter or stuff with a physical reality. And it's actually made up of energy. Energy that is made up of waves. And the waves are not physically real. Stay with me. Buckle your seatbelt, folks. Quantum mechanics states that at any given moment, you cannot really say for sure where something like an electron or a photon, a light particle, actually is. It doesn't have a defined space or position. It's not actually set. Quantum theory says that you can only get a range of answers somewhere along this wave, that somewhere inside this wave of probability is the answer. Until you actually measure, till you actually observe the photon or the electron or the neutron or the atom, until you actually observe the quark, till you enter into a relationship with it, then the thing appears somewhere in the dimension of that wave, somewhere within that wave of probability, it just appears out of nowhere. Like, literally, out of nowhere. The quantum wave isn't real in the old sense of that term. So science, for centuries, was sure that the old religious principle of the ordered universe and the creator God that liked efficiency and everything in its place the great clockmaker is sometimes the metaphor that's used, that God just put the universe into motion, wound up the clock, set it going, and it's been going ever since. has been replaced by this newer truth based on the idea of quantum energy and waves that don't really exist, that the universe is random and messy and complex. That matter goes from this indiscriminate place somewhere in a wave of energy in the quantum realm to become a particle or like a Lego block in our real world, in the big world. And no one knows how. This is what quantum physics teaches us about trying to make sense of the world. right? You have this wave that is a wave until it's not, or is not until it is, you have a mystery that's a mystery until it's not, or until it is. It's kind of mythic, right? That particles of light might just appear out of nowhere. 
and you can't predict where they're going to be even if you know where they should be based on the old laws. It's kind of both awesome and awful at the same time. So there was this debate between scientist Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein, who I'm sure we're all familiar with. It was a debate between a universe of randomness, the quantum theory, Niels Bohr's position, and the universe of order, the Newtonian, Albert Einstein position. And Bohr won the debate. Einstein had the old view that said things can be explained to a precise point. An object can't be in two places at once. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction, right? If we took any physics or science, we know this. His most famous theory, that E equals mc squared, has to do with the speed of light. And his hypothesis was that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. I think we all register with that. Niels Bohr, on the other hand, said no. Things don't have a precise point. We can only guess a probability. Somewhere along this wave is where things actually are. And that things can actually be in two places at once, according to this theory. And that maybe some things just are faster than light. Ancient thought experiment, ancient, I say, I don't know, 1800s, called Schrodinger's Cat. This thought experiment that, according to quantum theory, if you had two boxes, and you put the cat into one without looking, that you're trying to pick which box the cat is in, but you don't know until you open it. And you don't know until you open the box, till you observe, till you make a measurement, till you enter into relationship with it, whether the cat is in the box or not. According to the old view, right, the cat is in one or the other. You just have to try and guess. But according to quantum theory, the cat is actually in both boxes at the same time. And until you observe it, till you make a measurement, only then will the cat physically appear where you can see it. And you're either right or you're wrong. But when the lid is closed, or when you're not looking, when you're not observing it, when you're not in relationship, it's actually in both boxes. Einstein heard this theory that Niels Bohr was purporting, that things could be in two places at once, and that quarks and, and photons were in multiple positions, and until you observed, then they only then would they appear. And Einstein said, now are you telling me, this is not Einstein's accent, by the way, he said, now are you telling me that if I stop looking at the moon in the night sky, that it disappears when I'm not looking at it? and then reappears when I look back at it, that only by observing it is it actually there. And Niels Bohr was kind of like, uh, yeah, that's kind of what we're saying. That's wild. But weirder still is the idea of quantum entanglement. That when two particles, two photon, two electron, two anything, have been in connection and then split apart, that they have become entangled with one another. And that even if these two particles move billions of miles away, if you measure or observe something about one of the particles, you immediately know something about the other. That the way that they're spinning, or their position, or their velocity, a lot of other physics things I don't really understand, the spin thing I kind of get, if one is spinning one way, they have been entangled. The other particle is spinning the other way. 
And you can know that by looking at one, you immediately know it about the other, even if the two particles are billions of miles away. There's some kind of connection, some kind of conversation, communication, that goes faster than the speed of light. So I've heard it described as two particles at opposite ends of the universe. If one is observed to be spinning in one way, you know immediately that the other is spinning the other way. On the other side of the universe, they have communicated across the galaxies instantly, faster than the speed of light. Almost like gravity and space-time aren't physically real in a physical distance, but it's more like they're just one big sheet that's stretched taut, and if you pull on one end of the sheet, it immediately pulls on the other end, and vice versa. So I hear that, and I think about the ancient stories and myths that talk about the great blanket of the sky, the great dome of the sky, that is one solid thing. And I think, you know, maybe they weren't so far off in those myths. The idea of non-locality, that things are instantly connected by some force, like time and space aren't separate, but are in fact one big structure. The entanglement depends on particles having been in contact with one another. So if you take the Big Bang Theory to be truth, where everything was all in one point, one singularity, then at some point, every particle that's in the universe, including everything that makes us, everything that makes up our stars, our galaxies, meteorites, satellites, our favorite pets, was in contact at one point in a great singularity, that we are all entangled and enmeshed and connected faster than the speed of light. That is awesome. So the final piece of quantum physics that undergirds everything, something called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. It states that when you observe, when you enter in relation, when something becomes real, you can measure some things precisely, but not everything. That if you know one thing about a quanta, about an electron, about a photon, you don't know the other. That the closer you get to one truth by finding a precise measurement of its speed or spin, that the other information, its position, its size, or whatever, that it goes to infinity. That the closer you get to one truth, the further you get from another. That's the story we're telling now. That the closer we get to one truth, the further we get from another. Pointing this towards maybe there has to be awe and mystery. There has to be a place for a religious response to the wonder of the universe, to the wonder of life, to the wonder of God. Because to know the full mystery, the thing behind the thing is to be disconnected from the rest of humanity, the rest of life. It's to be God. It is our uncertainty and our limits that connect us and create in us the need to tell stories and ponder. It is human to make myths, to believe myths, 
to look beyond myths. I think it's why the Inca built a trail that goes the long way around to shadow the paths of the stars and to commemorate the first pilgrimage of the Incan people. It's about a journey. It's about a connection. It's about process. It's about becoming entangled with your fellow pilgrims in preparation for the destination via relationship and community. And friends, in these holy days, when the myths and the stories and the legends are all around you, if they do not speak to your logical center or your religious experience, that is okay. But I invite you to look beyond the myth and the story at what they're trying to make sense of and feel the wonder and awe of the universe, of the mystery. To ponder your place in it, feel whatever you feel, and just know that a story may not give you the truth of the nature of the universe, but it might show you the truth about the nature of the universe. It might be the only way to convey the feeling that the universe is fundamentally more wild and awesome than we could have ever imagined, and that it is built on this idea of the centrality of connection and relationship and entanglement with one another. That we are an entangled people, making our way across the stars on this fantastic voyage. That we are myth in the making. We are all part of that story. A story of wonder and awe. And we need only look up at the night sky to experience it and to remember it and to be it. May that be so, friends. Amen. For more from Reverend McKinley, you can follow him on Twitter, at McKinley L. Sims. That's at Twitter, at McKinley L. Sims. Read the blog, uuministry.com backslash McKinley Sims. Or reach out to him on Facebook via the UU Restoration Mount Airy Facebook page. Uh-huh.